thank you again for the, uh, the privilege it is to be allowed to preach here and to speak here. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 11. We will now we will be finishing today, Luke 11. We've spent a bit of time there, but then it's a big chapter. But there's much interesting things left yet in Luke chapter 11. And uh, it commences with an invitation to a meal. You ever wondered if you wanted to get Jesus to come to your place? You know how you did it? You put a meal on. You think of the number of times in Scripture that Jesus showed up to a, to a meal, to a dinner. Um, you know, you, you want to get him there? Announce there's a big feed and invite a bunch of people. And, and he showed. He was there. He was always there. Weddings, funerals, he was there. Um, and this was about a man who invited him to a meal and got a little bit more than he expected. So let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed portion of Scripture. We thank you for the way you have opened it up to our hearts and minds. And Lord, we just pray a blessing on each one here that they may learn to see the Lord Jesus a little clearer and understand his teaching a little better. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Verse 37. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. Okay. It was a, a meal. Well, you know, the first question you come to is, well, I can't do is which meal was it? Yeah, late breakfast? Brunch? Afternoon tea? Yeah, meal at night? There is indication, and we'll get to it later, that this was, if you like, Saturday lunch, Sabbath lunch. That this was occasioned on, they'd been to synagogue, they'd had the, they, they'd fulfilled all their obligations there, and they were now going to the main meal of the day on Sabbath. Okay? The indication is because there were other guests that had been invited, that it wasn't just a, a, a case of, of this Pharisee saying, oh, you know, you want to come to my place for lunch? This was a, this was a, a meal that had been set up with guests and a, and a proper menu and the whole business was being done uh, fairly formally. Verse 38, And when the Pharisee saw it, he marvelled that he had not first washed before dinner. Okay, this thing about the washing of hands. We look and we go, oh, yeah, he didn't wash before he sat down. Oh, yuck. You know, that's the immediate sort of a thing. That's not what we're talking about because this had nothing to do with cleanliness. Nothing to do with cleanliness. It had everything to do with ceremonial washing. Now here's, just understand what it meant to wash before dinner. And remember, this was the same no matter how clean or dirty your hands were. Right? You could be, you know, sterile as a surgeon and they'd still want you to do the same thing. Or you could come in from ploughing all day in the fields and this was considered sufficient to be clean. Okay? You would sit down and a servant would bring water and you would wash one hand. Then a blessing would be recited and fresh water would be brought and you would wash both hands using the clean hand to wash the dirty hand. It was required that the amount of water be not less than the volume of one and a half eggs. Now, you know, were they little eggs or big? They don't say what size eggs, incidentally. But it had to be more than the volume of one and a half eggs and the water had to drip off your elbows as you held your hands up. If you didn't do that, 
you had to go back and start again. So if it only got almost, it got to the elbow and didn't drip, no, you had to go back to the start, wash one hand with, and then a blessing and then get a fresh water. You see, it had nothing to do with cleanliness. It had to do with rules and regulations. And Jesus simply said, I'm not having any part of this. And so he didn't do it. And the Lord said unto him, and it, now it's probable that this was actually at the end of the meal, that the meal would have then gone on ahead and uh, possibly the Pharisee had said, uh, I noticed you uh, skipped a bit at the start of the meal or something might have prompted it. But verse 39. Oh, incidentally, this, this is interesting. Um, you know that word washed there? That he, that he had not first washed before dinner? You know what word it is? Baptizo. Baptized. The same word. All right? Now, for those who would believe in sprinkling baptism, would they say that if it doesn't make any difference, that when your surgeon is about to operate, that if he sprinkles instead of immersing his hands and scrubbing, that it doesn't make any difference? I think not if it was your operation. No. Baptizo means to wash, to immerse thoroughly. Clearly here, it did not mean to sprinkle. Okay, that's just a, an extra little bit in there. That's baptizo used in a non-religious sense in the New Testament. So, verse 39. The Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. That's a thought comment. You make the cup and the plate clean outside and you don't clean inside? What is he getting at here? Well, now I realise this is entering into very foreign territory for, for the teenagers here. But it concerns washing up. Right? Uh, uh, bear with me because, you know, you will eventually get stuck with it one day. Where, if you get someone to do the washing up at your house and you drag them and chain them to the sink long enough to get them to actually do it and they just wash the outside of the cup, do you consider it fully washed? No. And what Jesus was saying to this Pharisee was... You would not accept this from your servants. If they washed just the outside of the cup and the plate and didn't wash the inside, you would not consider this a clean cup or plate. It's not good enough. You would not accept this from your servants. So why should your master accept it from you? That's the whole main thrust coming here. You make the, clean the outside of the, the cup and the platter. Your outward actions are fine and noble, but your inward actions are full of ravening and wickedness. It's not good enough for your servants. It should not be good enough to you. Verse 40. Ye fools, did not he that made that which, was, which is without make that which is also within? Did not God make the heart of man as well as the outside of man? Did not God also make the soul of man as much as he made the body of man? If he requires cleanliness and obedience from one, does he not require it from the other? They were... This is... is very basic, and you'll notice he refers to them as fools. Now, a biblical fool is not silly, as we think of a fool like a jester. 
A biblical fool is more ignorant and stupid. Now this is a very cutting insult to people who prided themselves on their intelligence and learning. And he's saying, you're ignorant and stupid because you haven't realised that the one who made the outside also made the inside. And you've missed the point. And now he begins to illustrate these points. In verse 41 he says, But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. Okay. This is, this is interesting here. You ever wondered what they seasoned their food with? Well, the, in, an, in another passage you find mint, rue and cumin mentioned. And any cook will know all those already. They're, they're quite common herbs still. But what's this about tithing herbs? Well... These Pharisees believed that unless everything in a meal had been tithed, it was unclean and not acceptable to them. So they would go out and they would say, okay, we're going to have roast lamb with mint. And they'd count the leaves on their mint bush, pull off 10%, as a tithe before they would tithe, before they would use the food the, the herb in the meal. That's how strict they were with it. And Jesus says, "You tithe the herbs, but then you say, then everything's clean. You're fools. You're ignorant, and you're missing the point." Because you've passed over, verse 42, judgment and the love of God. These things ought you have done and not to leave the other undone. Notice, he he doesn't condemn tithing. Doesn't condemn the tithing. He said, no, nothing wrong with the tithing. The point is, you've emphasised the little things. And you've missed the big things. What had they missed? They had missed the judgment and the love of God. Now, instructions on tithing. Leviticus, chapter 27. Leviticus 27. Leviticus... 27 verse 30. 27 verse 30. And it says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Okay? Very clear instructions. The tithe was the Lord's. Everything was to be tithed. But have a look over in Micah. Micah. Chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. Starting at verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, 
mercy and to walk humbly before thy God. That's what God required. To do justice, to walk humbly, to show mercy. These were the things that was required of a person in the Old Testament. And these people had missed the point. They'd emphasised the tithing and the outward and they had missed judgment and justice and mercy. It's interesting. Judgment. We think of judgment in a bad sense. Oh, judgment's coming. But what the emphasis here was on justice. Justice was missing from these people. They had become immoral and corrupt, yet thought that if they kept the ceremonies, they would still find favour with God. Now, now, understand what we're saying here. This is the problem. If I get money improperly and then tithe it, is that 90% that's left still clean? That's what they were saying. Well, I tithed it, so it must be, it's alright. Remember where it says, you tithe the mint and the rue and behold, everything's clean to you. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, they did a survey in Sydney of what are called slumlords. You know what a slumlord is? A slumlord is a person who rents out substandard dwellings to poor people who can't get a house anywhere else and charges them an exorbitant rent for it. Typically they don't maintain them, they don't look after them and the person's stuck there because they can't get another place and so they're paying too much rent for a poor quality building and, and it's just not right and not fair. In Sydney, a few years ago when this survey was done, you know what the biggest, who the biggest slumlord in Sydney was? The Church of England. Yeah. All those houses that had been left to them by, by people hoping to see good things done with them, the people who left them to the church had the best possible motives. They were thinking, yes, good things will happen to this. They had been not used properly. They hadn't been maintained. They'd been rented out at excessive rents to people who really couldn't afford it. And then when the money came in, they did charity work with it. Yeah, right. Does that make it clean? No, it doesn't. To pass over justice and mercy and then say, oh, but I tithed it. No, doesn't make it clean. Things that you get improperly and wrongly, you can't clean them up by shoveling 10% of it into the plate and thinking that that makes it all right. It doesn't. You know, it, it raises the question, if you, uh, if, you, if you play Tats Lotto and you get a, uh, a win, should you tie the, the winnings? Um, I remember a, a, a big Dutch guy, John Gronneveld, and, he, and he, he said that, don't worry if he ever won, won Tats Lotto, he, he definitely tied the... Uh, the, uh, the winnings and someone said to him you know, you know John that's the devil's money and his answer was yes and the devil has had it quite long enough so, <laughs> but there is a principle in here that you can't clean dirty money by tithing it you can't make good your bad actions by saying you're doing them for God These things, these people should have known. As, as Jesus said in another place to, to one of these Pharisees, Art thou a teacher in Israel and know not these things? These people should have known this stuff. That's why he calls them fools. Because they were supposed to be the teachers. They were supposed to be the instructors. 
and they had missed these points. Verse 43, Woe unto you Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the markets. Hmm. They love to be called rabbi, teacher. If someone calls me teacher as a mark of respect or or a mark of acknowledgement, let it be because I have faithfully and consistently taught them and enriched their souls, not because I wear a funny collar or a silly hat. That does not make a teacher or a preacher. It's what you do, what you say, marks you as a teacher or a preacher. And these people, they love to have the public acknowledgement. They love to have that greeting, Rabbi. And he said, and he gives them this, this title in verse, the start of verse 44, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. Hypocrisy is one of the defining marks of false religion. But you know, you don't have to be a, a, a religious person to be a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is very common. Let me give you a for instance. Let's say you spend a large amount of your time going around the world telling everybody how evil it is to use up natural resources and put carbon dioxide into the air and how we've all got to change and we've all got to make sacrifices and yet you own four houses and travel on jumbo jets. Al Gore, you're a hypocrite. Hypocrite. Or how about if you get elected to the Australian Parliament on a a green platform and then drive a turbocharged six-cylinder government car? Green Party, you hypocrites. Hypocrisy is plenty around in other than religious circles. It means to say one thing but to do another. The word, it's interesting, it comes from the expression to speak from behind a mask. Now some of you may have seen them. Greek players didn't wear makeup. Okay? Greek performers did not wear makeup. But they would have masks with either an exaggerated smile or an exaggerated frown on them, and a hole in there, and they would speak out from them. In the 1920s, uh, the actor James Mason put on a Greek play at Cambridge using the original Greek words and the Greek masks. And he said it was one of the most difficult acting jobs he ever had to do because of the way you had to project your voice from behind these masks. It's a very, very difficult job. It's quite a skillful job to be an actor behind a mask. But it raises a question. Had Jesus ever seen a Greek play? Because this term specifically refers to Greek actors. If he had not ever been to a Greek play, he certainly knew of them. He understood them. Alright? That these people spoke from behind a mask and you could not tell what they really looked like. They were hidden. Hypocrisy. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are as graves which appear not, and the men and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Hey, graves? What's what's with the graves? Okay, I understand here. To touch a dead body. You go back in the Old Testament. If 
you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean for three days. Now the Jews extended that to say, if you touched a coffin. Then it went to, if you touched, if you buried someone. Then it went to, if you touched a recent grave. And then it became, if you touched any grave. Now you see how they'd added on? What originally started as a very good health law that said people who handle bodies shouldn't handle other things uh, for a few days afterwards to make sure they're not carrying a disease had become this ceremonial law that if you touched a grave or a tombstone you were unclean for three days. So what they would do just before Passover especially is they'd go out and they'd whitewash all the tombs. That was so if anybody was walking around, they didn't accidentally step on them and therefore become unclean. But he said, you guys are like graves which appear not. People walk past you, walk with you, are in your company and they become unclean. Hanging around these people rubs off. Yep. Hanging around hypocrites rubs off. The, it, it was said to me one time when I was in Bible college that every problem the church ever faces through her history, or has faced through her history, is found in the first few years. Every, every falsehood and every heresy is just a repeat of the ones that the church came across in the first 50 or 60 years. And it's interesting, because of all the biblical groups, you know, the Manichaeans and the, uh, all these different uh, heresies that came up, the one group which I find alive and well and still functioning very well in today's society is the sect of the Pharisees. They're still around and thriving. People who say, oh, I'm so good and I'm so clean and if you'll just live like me, you'll be all right. They defile people. Because Phariseeism leads to hypocrisy. Verse 45, Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, Thou reproachest us also. Now this was one of the other guests at this meal. It says a lawyer. Now not, not a solicitor, not a barrister, not that sort of lawyer. He was what we would normally call a scribe. He was a copier of the law and like the original Pharisees now the original Pharisees were good people who said we ought to get back to holy living but it got sidetracked and and twisted and went where it shouldn't the original scribes were good people who said it's our job to copy the scriptures accurately and preserve them for everybody good motive But it got sidetracked and twisted. And they began to become authorities on what the law said rather than just sticking to the job of copying it. Now up until now, this guy had been so happy, he had been sitting back there probably with his arms folded going, preach it, preach it, go, get get him. Because the scribes and the Pharisees clashed often. See, the scribes said if it's not written down, We only work on the written law. The Pharisees said, no, we we hold to the oral traditions as well. Now, if you write down an oral tradition, does that make it a written law? These were the sort of arguments that they had. And so, up up until now, he's been happy to see the Pharisees get it. He's, He's been going, yeah, yeah, give it to them. They deserve every bit of it. 
Then he's realized, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, yeah, you, you're getting onto my territory here. And uh, Master, uh, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, there, uh, what you're saying, it, it's getting on, on, on our stuff as well. You're, you're criticizing us as well. In verse 46, and he said, Woe unto you also, lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves will not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What does he mean? Well, we understand what the burdens were. You must do this. You must do that. All right? If not, well, there's punishments and there's sanctions and there's all this sort of stuff. You've got to do it this way. You've got to do it that way. What were the burdens that they wouldn't lift? Well, there were two. One was the legal burden. One was saying, no, no, look, it's okay. You can do it this way. Do it that way. It's easier. This is a simpler way. This is a more convenient way. They wouldn't do that. They just made it more and more and more complicated. The other thing was, there's a sin burden. These people were trying, the the average person was trying to keep the law to feel their sin lifted. And these people were doing nothing to lift the sin burden of the people who were around them. Because they were all about doing this little detail stuff and they had passed over the justice and the mercy of God which would have relieved the sin burden from these people. They wouldn't lift the burdens that the people were carrying. The burden of their sin and the knowledge that they were estranged from God was not being helped by these religious leaders. They were putting more and more laws on them and not helping them with their real problems. Now, I love to see people come to church. And I'll tell you, I do not care what a person wears when they come to church. No, does not worry me. You know why? Because if they come to church long enough, they'll change. The preaching of the word of God will have an effect on them. You don't make rules for people. You don't say, oh, you can't come into our church unless you do this or do that. No. Doors open. Anybody who wants is welcome to come in and listen. Why? Because the first thing is to lift the burdens that are on people. And all the rest will follow. I remember seeing one guy come in. And he had one of those buttons. You know the buttons you you pin on? button it must have, it must have been that big all right and it had a picture of this indian guy on it and it had underneath there or around it the guru maharishi is my lord and he was wearing it in church and someone said i've, I've got i said no He's doing it to get a rise out of you. He's doing it to challenge you. Smile and say nothing. He came back the next week and he wasn't wearing it. A couple of weeks later he was saved and baptised. Why? Because the word of God had the effect on him. Not saying things to people and saying, Oh, you can't wear that here or you can't do that here. God's word will do its job in people's lives if we will lift the burden of sin that they're feeling. You you cover men, you laid men with burdens too grievous to be borne and you yourselves will not touch one of the burdens with their little fingers, with your little finger. Woe unto you! For you build the sepulchres of the prophets and your fathers killed them. Eh? What's that got to do with anything? Okay. If the traditions of the fathers are so important, then why do you honour the prophets that your fathers 
killed. Ah. On one hand, they're saying the traditions of the fathers must be observed. They are holy and righteous. On the other hand, they're saying, but uh, the guys the fathers persecuted, well, we must honour them too because they were prophets. You can't have it both ways. You can't have either, either the prophets were right and your ancestors were wrong or your ancestors were right and the prophets were wrong. You build memorials to the prophets, but the people who gave you your traditions killed them. So which is it? Well, you can't have both things. But they tried to have a bit both ways, and that's why he said you're hypocrites. Because you want the, the traditions of the ancestors, but you, you don't agree with the deeds of the ancestors. You can't have both. To want both is to be a hypocrite. Verse 49. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. Now this is interesting. This, this, I tell you, it bears some digging into. Because, now who's, who's got one of those centre reference thingies in their Bible? You know, where you got... Where it, it, it tells you where a reference comes from? You got one there? No. But Jesus says, Therefore also said the wisdom of God. Where? That's not a quote from anywhere. Now there are a couple of ex- possible explanations here. One person said, Well, actually... That little first bit there, therefore also said the wisdom of God, isn't actually the words of Christ. That's, a, that's what Luke wrote. And he's referring to Christ as the wisdom of God. Mm. Uh, nah. Nah, I don't, don't like that bit. Uh, it's possible, but I really doubt that. I'll give you three references from the Old Testament that Jesus could be referring to. And we'll come and you'll see which one I I think it is later on. First of all, try Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25. Jeremiah 7, 25. Jeremiah 7, 25 Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Eh, Could be a paraphrase of that. Could be a paraphrase of of Jeremiah 7.25. Yeah, that that is possible. How about 2 Chronicles? Second Chronicles thirty six. Second Chronicles thirty six verses fifteen. Verse fifteen and sixteen. Second Chronicles thirty six, fifteen, sixteen. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up besides times and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Could be a paraphrase of that. Could be. While well, you're in Second Chronicles... Turn back to verse to chapter 24. Similar sort of thing. Second Chronicles 24 verse 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord and they testified against them but would not give them ear. Yeah, it's possible. 
So there are plenty of places where this message, if not this exact uh, reference, is made. So I think that this is just a case where Jesus is not quoting Old Testament but simply paraphrasing what has been said several times in the Old Testament that God sent prophets and apostles to his people and yet they wouldn't listen and they killed them and abused them and persecuted them. And then he makes an interesting comment. Verse 50, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. It says this hypocrisy and this violence against the messengers of God is going to culminate in this generation. With his own death is what he's speaking of. He said this, this pattern of abusing and persecuting the prophets and the messengers of God is going to reach its peak with this generation. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias which perished between the temple and the altar, verily I say to you it will be required of this generation. Now there are two interesting people he mentions there. Zechariah and Abel. Abel, we understand, was the first martyr. Back in Genesis chapter 4 verse 8, Abel was the first martyr. Killed by his brother. Why? Because his own deeds were righteous and his brother's deeds were evil. So his brother murdered him. But the second one, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, who perished between the temple and the altar. You ever heard of that guy? Not a biggie, is he? He's not one that gets a, gets a regular uh, outing when you talk about martyrs. Where's he found? Have a look over back again in Second Chronicles 24. 2 Chronicles 24, where is it? It's in verse 20, directly after that reference, which would make an appropriate paraphrase for the words of Christ just previously. He then says in the story of Zacharias in in chapter 20, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiadiah, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. He perished inside the court of the temple between literally the altar and the the brass altar and the inner part of the temple. That's where they stoned him and he died there. So that's why I believe that the reference in in, uh, verse... Verse 49 is very likely a reference to chapter verse 19 of 2 Chronicles. Makes such a neat command, neat tie-up that then immediately he begins to speak about the martyrs and finishes up with Zechariah in exactly the same book that he was talking about earlier. But why those? I mean, why put the martyrship from him to him? Was Zechariah the last person killed? For the word of God? No. So why is he mentioned? Well, that's because in the Hebrew Bible, the first book was the book of Genesis. You know what the last book was? Second Chronicles. 
So in fact, it's like us saying from Genesis to Revelation. To say from Abel to Zechariah is within the Hebrew Bible the first martyr written and the last martyr written, even though they're not the, the, first, the first and last in time. They are the first and the last in Scripture. That's why he, say, he, he says here, so that all the martyrs from the start to the finish will be required at this generation's hand because they are going to slay the one that they prophesied of. Verse 52, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and and them that were entering in you hindered. You know, there's one thing that's worse than not being saved. There's one thing that's worse than that. And that's hindering other people from coming to God. Because when, when you refuse God, when you turn your back on the gospel, when you say, I'm not going to have anything to do with it, you damn your own soul. But if you hinder other people from getting saved, you put their souls in peril and that's even worse. They wouldn't enter in themselves and hindered those who wanted to understand and wanted to come to God by their stupid rules and laws and regulations. He condemns them as hypocrites, as hinderers of seekers of the truth, as the people who needed to get out of the way. So what was the result? Verse 53, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. They kept saying, keep going, keep going, keep going, say some more. And it really amazes me, the scribes and the Pharisees. So far, they've accused him of breaking the law. They've said that he was an agent of Satan And now they're going, well, in that case, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Now we're going to get serious about this. How much more serious could they get? They could plot to kill him. That's what they began to do. With their hypocrisy exposed, their only solution was to murder the person who exposed them. Not change their ways, not clean up their act, not do what they were supposed to but to try and get rid of the person who exposed their hypocrisy. Oh, and now, I, I guess there's a, whole, there's a few people here, it's really easy to say, okay, uh, good, yeah, we got to the end of this, this chapter, and he hasn't nailed me yet, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. See, because I believe... I'm saved. I'm a Christian. And so these things don't apply to me. You know, there's another sort of hypocrite. We speak of these scribes and Pharisees of being hypocrites because on the outside they looked so good and on the inside they were so rotten. There's another sort of hypocrite. And that's a Christian who believes... Doesn't act like it. Christian who believes in their heart what the Word of God says and has accepted Christ and then tries to go around conforming to the world on the outside. Hypocrisy. To speak from behind a mask. Not a Christian mask, but the world's mask. To be a hypocrite. And everything. That, we, that, God, that God said about these people applies to you, if you're like that. If you're living the way the world lives, and yet the word of God has touched your heart and has changed your heart, you're hindering those who would enter in. You're preventing people coming to Christ because you're not consistent in your message. The, the body is saying one thing and the soul is saying the other, and it's hypocrisy and it's not right. 
Woe unto you, he says. Hypocrites. What do we need to be? We need to be consistent. We need to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside. We need to be Christians all the way through to the outside. Because what was it that started this whole thing? Go right back to the start of chapter 11. And what does he say? He says, let your light so shine that people will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. He said, be like lights set on a hill that can't be hid. Be like a city that's put up there and full of lights and no one can miss it. Be consistent. Have the one standard throughout from your heart to your works. Be the children of light. And people will see and be attracted by it. Oh, religious leaders. How often we, we see them failing to live up to the standards that they should. God holds those who put themselves up as teachers and preachers and religious authorities. He holds them to a very high standard. Hypocrisy, a dangerous, dangerous thing. Have a look at those who are around you. Do their lives match their words? Do their lives match their beliefs? Are they consistent? And then have a look at yourself, each of us. Have a look at ourselves and say, does my life match my belief? Do the words I say and the things I do match the belief I have in my heart? Am I consistent? And if it's not, don't turn on those who would expose that. Let us all make sure that we come to God, we obtain the forgiveness we need and live lives that bring honour and glory to him. Thank you.